John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither the man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I, will be, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went away and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, no, he just looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? <coughs> Excuse me, open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? they asked. I don't know, he said. Well, I remember the Saturday quite well. It was uh, about two o'clock in the afternoon, about 15, 16 years ago. The appointment had been made and the guy duly turned up on our doorstep. He came armed with his equipment. He came armed with the best vacuum cleaner that the world had ever seen. This is a thing 15, 16 years ago, long before we'd ever heard of the word Dyson. Um, this was long before that. There was this Hoover thing. It wasn't a Hoover because they didn't make them. But it was a water-powered vacuum cleaner that would just render your carpets like new. And it was a sales pitch that went round from person to person. One person found his way into one of our small groups in this church and suddenly thought he had 800 potential customers. And this was like heaven to him. And he duly appeared with his vacuum cleaner and with his pump and with his water that he had to use the thing because it was water driven. But not content with telling you about the most fantastic, most powerful vacuum cleaner in the world. Oh no, he had to demonstrate it. And he demonstrated it by making your carpet even dirtier. He showed you how dirty your carpet was to begin with. You saw dirt you'd suspected was there, but you didn't want to know about it. But suddenly, he made it all become real. And then he brought his own dirt with him as well, which he duly spread all over our lounge. We were sent out of the house and were reassured that on our return, our carpet would be like new. We had two children under the age of five. We had set him a challenge above all challenges. Some people think that becoming a Christian is a bit like a sales pitch for a vacuum cleaner. Come to know Jesus and everything will be made clean. Come to know Jesus and everything will be tidy. Come to know Jesus and everything will be 
will be sorted. Become a Christian and all your problems will disappear. The reality, of course, is somewhat different. The reality is that God made people, not appliances. The Bible is the story of how God works in the lives of human beings. It's not a manual for a product. God made people and not products. And the reality is that often when we become Christians, yes, a few things in our lives get sorted out, but often, if we're honest, things get messier. Things get more complicated. Yes, we end up with answers to some questions, but in becoming a Christian, we end up with a whole different set of questions. That was certainly the case in John chapter 9 for this guy who encountered Jesus. It's certainly the case for people like Hamza and other people from a Muslim background who are deciding to follow Jesus, but for whom life becomes incredibly complicated and risky. If you were to ask Hamza, I would guess that he would say that all his problems have not disappeared. And it certainly was the case for the man that we encounter in John chapter 9 who met Jesus. Even his healing was messy. It involves spit. It involves saliva. It involves mud. You won't find this in any textbook on how to pray for healing. Members of our prayer ministry team, you will be revealed to know, uh, relieved to know, don't carry around bowls of mud so that they can spit in it and rub it and anoint you with it when you come forward for prayer. Paul might, but he's from New Zealand, so it's a bit different. It's in no textbook about how to pray for people. It doesn't involve spit and mud and saliva. Healing, the very act of receiving his healing itself, is messy. It got messy, as we'll see in a minute, for that man in his relationships, both with his own family and also with his own community. Things got messier when this man met Jesus. Things got messier when this man was healed by Jesus. There are basically four groups in this particular story. The first group that we encounter are the disciples of Jesus. The background is that they're there for the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. Jesus, if you remember the story from last week, has just had this young woman brought in front of him, caught in the act of adultery, and he's, he's made this devastating statement that he or she who is without sin cast the first stone. And at the end, all that was left was Jesus writing in the sand, a young girl and a pile of stones, because everybody realized the truth of what Jesus said, that nobody in that crowd had the right to throw the first stone. And probably the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're a bit narked by this. They're a bit irked by this. The disciples are starting to wonder what's going on. What is Jesus playing at? They thought this would be one of the times when surely here he is in Jerusalem when he would start to reveal who he really was, that he was God's anointed, God's Messiah, God's chosen one. So there's a bit of tension in the air. People are starting to wonder who Jesus is. Does Jesus really know what he's doing? Does Jesus really know what he's saying? Walking in the temple courts, they see this guy begging. 
And the disciples perhaps exchange some questions amongst each other, and then they turn to Jesus. And standing over this guy who, who is begging, they say, Jesus, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents? What they see is a theological debate and a theological discussion. They see a problem to be solved. They don't see somebody in need. Prevalent at that time in first century Judaism was this idea that somehow if you were sick, if you were ill, that meant that you or somebody in your family had sinned. So your illness, your sickness, your disease was the result, the consequence of your own sin. You see it expressed in different ways today in, in our world, perhaps in Hinduism or Buddhism through the idea of reincarnation. The idea that somehow in this life you are picking up the consequences of a previous life. This teaching, sadly, is still around in some Christian churches today. I've been in churches where people have said, oh, well, the reason you aren't healed is because there's sin in your life. The reason you haven't received healing is because you haven't confessed sin in your life. It's still around. And the disciples were in that way of thinking. Who sinned that this man was blind? Was it his mum and dad? Or was it this guy? Jesus doesn't see a theological debate. Jesus doesn't see a theological discussion. He simply sees, in his words, an opportunity to display the glory and the power and the majesty and the mercy and the goodness of God. And so he takes some mud and he spits on it and he rubs it into a paste and he rubs it on the man's eyes and he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and then to wash. And the man goes, presumably helped because he's still blind. And then in verse 7, there is this remarkable sentence where it says, and he came home seeing. And the contrast is before he was blind, now he sees. So there's the disciples who just see a theological debate. Well, the second group are the Pharisees. Remember, they're irked by their early encounter with Jesus and the fact that they all had to drop their stones. And they find out that this guy who's been begging in the temple courts now is claiming that he can see. And so they start to conduct three sets of interviews. They interview the man, they interview the parents, and then they interview the man again. Interestingly, they never actually tackle Jesus. Now, the Pharisees often get a bad press in the church. And it's true that, in some ways, they become the baddies. Josh had us booing them all uh, last week, as if it was a panto. But actually, in some ways, Pharisees were very devout. They were very sincere people. They, they had just got a bit confused. They just lost, lost sight, really, of why they did what they did. They fasted, they prayed, they went to the temple, and they wore the right clothes, and they knew exactly how you should live, at least they thought they did, and how God wanted you to live. They were sincere, they were devout, but they just lost sight of why they did what they did. And when they hear that this man has been healed, well, their first thought is that means that somebody has broken the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, it transpires from their investigations, their three interviews, the law of Moses has been broken in three ways. Firstly, Jesus has anointed a man. That's work. 
Secondly, Jesus has created the paste with the mud and the spit. That means kneading. So that's a second example of work. And then he's prayed for healing, a third example of work. So three times Jesus, in their eyes, has broken what we would call the Old Testament law. And that's all they can see. You see, they miss what's right in front of their eyes because they're focusing on the wrong things. They're focusing on being really, really good and really, really religious. But the tragedy is that if you focus on being really, really good and being really, really religious, the tragedy is that you can miss the miracle that God is doing right in front of your eyes. And that's what they missed. They become focused on doing the right things. They become focused on saying the right words. They become focused on wearing the right clothes. They become focused on going to the right places. They become focused on keeping all the rules, and they'd lost the understanding of why the rules were there in the first place. So there's the disciples who just simply see a theological debate. There's the Pharisees who get focused on the wrong thing. And then the third group, and perhaps the most culpable of all, are the parents of the man. Mum and dad. And this is where things get really messy. They're hauled before the Pharisees, verse 18. They profess ignorance and innocence. We weren't there. We don't know. We haven't got a clue. He's of an age. Ask him. Don't ask us. And they just say, we don't know. And we're told in verse 21, it's because they were afraid. A bit like Hamza, and a bit like many who are coming to know Jesus from the Muslim community, there is a reason to be afraid. When this man was healed of his blindness, he would not be able to carry on begging. So these parents were at risk of losing a very, very lucrative income source. If they said what had happened to their son, and they said to the Pharisees something that the Pharisees didn't want to hear, then they risked being expelled from the synagogue, being thrown out of the temple, being ostracized by their society. They risked not only losing their income, they also risked now losing their identity and losing their sense of community. Because if they said that their son had been healed and challenged the Pharisees, then that was it. They were out. So that's why they're afraid. And there isn't another synagogue, another temple that they can go to. It's not as though they're going to the Episcopal Cathedral or the Episcopal Synagogue or the Presbyterian Synagogue and they can go down the road to the Baptist one. It didn't work like that. If you were thrown out of the synagogue or thrown out of the temple, that was it. End of story. So they're afraid. They risk losing their income and they risk losing their identity as well. And then it comes to the man himself. There's the disciples, there's the Pharisees, there's the parents, and then there's the man. Who, if you think about it, has gone through perhaps the strangest day of his life. It had started normally, blind as he had been from birth. He'd been begging outside the temple, and then things had started to get weird and messy. 
Some people had started a discussion standing over him as to who had sinned, whether it was him or whether it was his mum and dad. They didn't talk to him, they talked about him. And then he heard somebody spit. Well, perhaps that wasn't unusual. Perhaps that was quite normal. People quite often perhaps spat at him. But this is different. Somebody spits and then starts to rub something on his eyes. This, I mean, it's one thing to spit at somebody, but rubbing spit and mud on someone's eyes, this is weird. This hasn't happened before. And then the person who spat and the person who's rubbed what he thinks might be mud on his eyes now tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash in it. Maybe to get away from the weird stuff that's going on all around him, he goes to the pool of Siloam, washes in the water, and for the first time in his life, he can see. For the first time in his life, he sees sunshine. For the first time in his life, he sees blue sky. For the first time in his life, he sees what his mum and dad looked like. For the first time in his life, perhaps, in the reflection of the pool of Siloam, he sees what he looks like. And then things start to get very messy. And then things start to get very complicated. The Pharisees call him in and say, who made you blind? He says, I don't know. The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. It's not in any books on Christian healing, but he did it anyway. He told me to go to, he doesn't say that, by the way. Um, He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where's this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. And if you follow the rest of the story through in John chapter 9, this man goes through a process. By verse 15, he's simply saying, I washed and now I see. By verse 17, he's calling Jesus a prophet. By verse 25, he's coming up with what has been taken as a a sort of byword. One thing I know, once I was blind, but now I can see. That's all I know. Once I was blind, but now I can see. But actually from there, things progress and get even messier. By verse 27, he's teasing the Pharisees. When they ask him back for a second interview, they hurl insults at him and say, you are this bloke's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the reason they get angry with him is because right at the end of his testimony, he says to the Pharisees, do you want to become a follower of Jesus too? Light blue touch paper and retire. Woof! It all goes up. And all of a sudden, this man is in a grave danger because he's, he's lost his income stream. He's definitely lost his identity. And now he's veering towards saying, well, hang on, this guy, Jesus, he's a prophet and he's healed me. And one thing I know, once I was blind and once I can see, and you're questioning whether he's from God, well, all I can say to you, and he comes up verses 30 to 33 with almost like a sort of theological TED talk. That's remarkable, he says. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Dot, dot, dot. 
And what he's saying is, look at who this man is. Look at what this man has done. If this man has opened my eyes, that means that this man is godly. That means that this man is from God. And if one of the signs of the Messiah is that he will open the eyes of the blind, dot, dot, dot. They really lose it with him. And they throw him out of the synagogue. They chuck him out of the temple. Jesus hears that he's been chucked out and goes to find him. He asks him a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man says. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus says, you have now seen him. Nobody had ever said that to him before. Nobody had ever said those words to that man before. You have now seen him because he'd never been able to see before. And the man says, I believe. And John tells us he worships Jesus. He falls down at the feet of Jesus and starts to worship him and to revere him and to recognize him as the Messiah. But then things get messy. Again, even messier. Because by now he's out of sync with the Pharisees. He's been chucked out of the temple. He's been chucked out of the synagogue. By now, he's out of sync with his parents, and his relationship with his parents that may have been complicated before is about to get even more complicated because they denied that their son, who was blind, can now see. And so his relationship with his society has got more complicated. His relationship with his parents has got more complicated. His identity is different now because he used to be known as the blind man who begged. Well, now he is neither blind nor, nor can he beg. And you see, meeting Jesus makes things more complicated. And meeting Jesus makes things less straightforward. And meeting Jesus means that he ends up with a whole set of different questions and challenges in life. But if you'd said to that man, as you say to Hamza, is it worth it? He would say, absolutely. Does it mean that life is straightforward? No. Does it mean that everything is clean and neat and tidy and hoovered up like a vacuum cleaner pitch? No. Does it mean that life might get messier and more complicated and less straightforward? Yes. Does it mean that your relationships might get more complicated and more questionable and you might get ostracized and you might have some hostility from some people? If you put the name of Jesus first in your life, if you say that you belong to the kingdom of God first rather than your company or your family or your country, yes. It got messier for this man because he met Jesus. But if you'd have asked that man, was it worth it? he'd have said, absolutely. Because he'd far rather live with Jesus and his sight than live without Jesus and without his sight. You see, Christianity is not about living a relationship with God where we have to have things sorted, where we have to be okay, where we have to be good, where we have to be religious, where we have to be nice. It's not about, like, the, the, the disciples answering all the big theological questions, although they're important, but they're not important if we lose sight of the person and the need. It's not right if we make people into theological pawns in an argument. 
and forget that they're people. But neither is it right like the Pharisees if we focus on the wrong things, which are good in themselves, but if they're meaning that we're losing the point of why we do what we do, of why we say what we say, of why we go where we go, and why we fast, and why we pray, and why we do the things that we think are involved in becoming or being a Christian, then actually they're not helpful things. And maybe we're in the situation of, of being like his parents, or perhaps like, like Hamza, where we're afraid to tell other people that we're a Christian. We're afraid of the cost of what that will mean. We're afraid of losing identity. We're afraid of losing friends. We're afraid of losing society. We're afraid of life getting messier. The whole point is that we don't have to clean up our act before we follow Jesus. That's what grace is all about. And if we're honest this morning, most of our lives, to one degree or another, are fairly messy. We might be really good at pretending to other people. We might be fantastic at pretending to ourselves. And some of us may even think that we're quite good at pretending to God. But the reality is that God sees through us and sees in us. And he still loves us and he still accepts us. But in the words of Max Licardo, he loves us too much to leave us that way. He accepts us as we are with all the mess. And he says, you can bring it to me because that's why I died. I was messed up on the cross so that you can be put right. And that putting right will take a lifetime and beyond into eternity. And it's okay that you're messy now. And it's okay that you're mucked up now. And it's okay that things aren't neat and tidy and straight and that more actually you come into the light, your life is revealed to be messier and messier. That's okay. Because it means that as the light shines into your life, then your life is shown up for what it is. But if you bring it into the light, Jesus says, then I am the light of the world, and I will take away the darkness, and I will replace it with light and hope and life and peace. Even though it may feel frail, and even though it may feel fragile at times. But it's not about being sorted and neat and tidy and clean. It's about recognizing that we're messy. And that's precisely why Jesus came. And precisely why he died. In order that we might know his life living in us and through us. Being changed from one degree of glory, Paul says, to another. Some of our degrees of glory may feel pretty mucky, but it's still a degree of glory that you are being changed from and being changed into.